0: Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in south-central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. For today's show, we have The Costs of Alaska's Economic Roller Coaster, presented by Alaska Common Ground. The event featured panelists from various sectors of the business community discussing the ups and downs of Alaska's economy and finding a stable source of state income. The event was recorded on January 27th at 49th State Brewing Company and was moderated by journalist John Tracy. We begin with a recorded message from Senator Lisa Murkowski, who was unable to attend the event.
1: So, hello, and thank you to the Alaska Common Ground for hosting this discussion on the costs of Alaska's economic roller coaster. I'm pretty sure that there's an awful lot of experts in the room because for decades now, Alaska has really been that poster child for an economic roller coaster. And when you think about it, when your state's economy is tied to primarily one resource, the price of which is controlled by OPEC, you can pretty much expect that you're going to be in for a wild ride. I recall that when I first joined the state legislature, the price of oil was hanging down around $9 a barrel. We were faced with a budget deficit, and then it wasn't more than four or five years after that. Oil is over $100, and we're looking at a surplus. So it was down, and it was up, and of course it goes down and we go up. So always the question that we ask ourselves as lawmakers, policy leaders, business people, general folks within the community, we're asking, we're asking the question, how can we help diversify and strengthen the Alaskan economy? So whether it's healthcare delivery, telecom and connectivity support, Alaska shipping, or the ability to pursue career, technical, and education opportunities, a key to securing meaningful legislative accomplishments is first securing bipartisan support. So let me give you a couple quick examples from where I'm sitting back here in Washington, D.C. Bipartisanship was crucial in fixing the seriously flawed No Child Left Behind Act. That law was passed in 2001, and, and many across Alaska recognized that it had its pros and cons. It certainly helped identify schools were not serving certain students well, and it focused attention, like a laser beam, on improving the way our schools served our children. But over time, what many recognized was that the law brought overtesting, a one-size-fits-nobody framework, and put Washington, D.C. in charge of our schools instead of local communities. And so, we came together. We worked to find consensus for a middle ground, preserving parents' right to know while giving educators the flexibility that they need to solve local needs and priorities. And we knew that only through bipartisanship, when every member had an equal chance to contribute their priorities to the final project, would we succeed in replacing NCLB with a law that would work for Alaskans, for Floridians, and everyone in between. And the result was a bill that moved unanimously through committee. It received 81 votes on the Senate floor and a conference report that passed with 85 votes in the Senate and 359 votes in the House. So a real demonstration of that cross-party bicameral support. Bipartisanship has also played a critical role in securing support for fisheries and ocean policy interests. The Senate Oceans Caucus, I'm a founding member of that, we have developed into a valuable venue for senators from both parties to come together to find common ground and identify solutions on issues like illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, marine debris, and OSHA data and monitoring. It's been really encouraging to see senators who may disagree on many, many other issues coming together in efforts to tackle issues that we all agree pose a threat to our marine ecosystems and resources. There is no doubt that when difficult decisions are before us, having support, widespread support to secure a solution that works for as many as possible is the best outcome. The conversations required to get there and really listening to the needs and the concerns of all are worth it. So I thank you for what you're doing to bring people together, This is what's going to make a difference for us in our state. It's what's going to make a difference for us in this country. I could probably use your assistance here in Washington, DC, because in the midst of this particularly politically toxic environment, it's so important that we be coming together to try to resolve these difficult issues with one another, working in good faith. So I look forward to hearing about the productive conversations that I know you will engage in. Good luck, and uh, uh, keep me apprised as to, as to where you're going to take us. I appreciate it. So
2: our panelists that, that are with us today, um, Angela, Leibel, uh, Angela Liebel, uh, the owner of Tidal Way Books, Joe Shearhorn, Chairman, President, and CEO of Northern Bank, Ryan Andrew, business representative of IBEW Local 1547. Larry Pursley, former chief of staff of the Kenai Peninsula Borough. Larry wants to point out he's not the one that fudged his resume. That's not him. Uh, Greg Razzo, Siri vice president of government contracting. And Mark Schneider of Schneider and Mode CPAs. So we're going to begin right now. Um, a lot of times uh, with these sort of think and these high-end thinkers, um, I it's just great to hear from them, but what's really great for me as a former small business owner is to hear from a small business owner first, because small businesses are the ones that really are impacted at the ground level from what's happening in the state. So I would like to introduce uh, a lifelong Alaska. Angela Liebel is the business owner of Tidal Wave Books in Midtown, now in her 20th year with the company. I remember when that started and everybody was like, is this really going to work? Well, it really worked, congratulations. Angela attended Stellar Secondary followed by APU and UAAA where she studied language and literature. She and her husband have two kids and as a family they enjoy spending time in Homer, oh, who doesn't, and camping around Alaska with their friends. Please welcome Angela Liebel. Angela, you can stand, you can sit, you can do whatever you'd like. You have the room.
3: Thank you, John. And thanks to Alaska Common Ground for inviting me. It's It's an honor, thank you. So uh, Tidal Wave has been in business now going on 29 years, and you know that uh, you've seen it grow and move and change over time from a little shop across from the Sears Mall to being over on Fireweed behind Chilkoot Charlie's in the old McKay Hardware Building, and then now in its current location since 2002 in the Northern Light Center. And during that time, you can imagine, you were, if you were here in Alaska, you've seen all of the businesses that have grown and changed and closed and opened during that time. Um, Just in our little mall, we've seen quite a bit of change. Everything from when we first moved in an Oriental rug store and a laser tag, um, like Video Arcade, to, of course, REI, and then all of the other little businesses that have kind of come up along beside us. So, from a business standpoint and working alongside the people that I do and seeing the customers that I interact with on a day-to-day basis, I'll just kind of share with you some of our our observations. Um, As a small, locally owned business, Tidal Wave has the unique opportunity to be almost like the small town post office or general store in that we see families of all walks of life. We see retirees, we see young families who have just moved here with the military. We see every age range and demographic come through our store. And it's really quite a gift because we have then the ability to talk to those folks. What are they doing in Alaska? How do they come to be here? Um, What do they do for business? What do they do for school? How do they parent their children? We're a part of that. We get to see generation after generation come through our doors. And in the economic instability, the roller coaster that we've seen, um, not only have we opened a second location and had to close that second location due to economic reasons, um, having to do with travel industry and the economic downturn in 2008, but also how that impacts our employees and staff and the people around us, the customers who come and, and shop in our store. Um, we do get to hear all of their triumphs, their joys, but also their struggles. And as a used, used uh, bookstore, we're buying books and merchandise from our customers, and we get to hear why they're thing, why are why they are selling their items to us. Whether it's to f- to bridge that gap between paychecks, whether they're on furlough, whether they're struggling raising kids, um, textbooks are expensive, so we talk to all kinds of students. So we get to hear those personal stories and have that interaction. That's on a on Somewhat of a unique and intimate basis that maybe not everybody would get to participate and hear a part of, um, we also hear their reasons along the lines of we're retiring and we're having to move out of state. we can't afford health care um, or it also could be the Marie Kondo effect, something along those lines, yeah um, but with that with those interactions, it feels like. As I mentioned, almost a small town post office or a small town store, in that that is that interconnectedness that we feel, that web that of connections that we have with our customers, um, extends also to what people shop for. And as Alaskans, and if you just think about what makes an Alaskan, maybe some adjectives that come to mind would be independent and resilient, pioneering self-sufficient maybe a sourdough living off the land we've seen in the last 10 years a sharp increase in what people are looking for along the lines of self-sufficiency being independent maybe it's urban farming um back when the municipality allowed chickens do you remember that a few years back and you probably have neighbors who have chickens Um, sharp increase in people wanting to just be self-sufficient to, again, close that gap, to not be reliant on the fluctuations in the grocery store, at the gas pump, and in every other aspect of their life. What could they do to control and mitigate and um, prevent some of those uh, fluctuations? So I don't have any one single you know, idea about how things can change, but I just know that in that interconnectedness and that web of ideas and the people that we talk to, that um, the solution is going to be something that is complex and, again, a web of interconnected ideas and um, steps that can be made together as a community.
2: Thank you, Angela. And you can pass the microphone to the right, and you can give her a round of applause. That's great. This It's not easy to sit up here and just... Well, our, our next presenter is Joe Shearhorn, and you know him as the chairman, president, and chief executive officer at Northrim Bank, a state chartered commercial bank, headquartered right here in Anchorage. Mr. Shearhorn was a charter employee of Northrim Bank, starting in commercial lending and serving as vice president and manager of commercial loans, chief operating officer, and chief financial officer before assuming the leadership of the bank. We're very appreciative of you being here tonight. The floor is yours, sir.
4: Thank you, John, and thank you all for coming out on this afternoon for this important topic. It's interesting listening to you uh, about your story of your business, because our bank started right about the same time, almost exactly, so in December of 1990, from one little branch in a trailer in our parking lot to what we have now throughout the state. And so we see businesses uh, and what they are going through from the North Slope all the way down to almost the tip of Southeast Alaska. So I'll talk to you a little bit about that. The topic on instability and the, and the effects that that has on our state, to me, uh, one of the key aspects to that is uncertainty. And businesses, when they make investments, look for, many times, long-term returns. And if there is uncertainty out there in the form of our state budget as to the deficits that it is running and whether or not the state government will have to look to business investors to solve some of that problem then that leads to greater uncertainty. The greater the uncertainty, the greater the risk and the greater the risk, the higher discount rate that's applied to those cash flows for those projects and the business owner, investor, Large or small, or large or small, they have to make that decision as to whether or not those discounted cash flows make sense, make a positive impact in relation to that initial investment that they're making. Um, this occurs from the basic real estate loan that our bank deals with to multi-billion-dollar projects that are occurring in Alaska. The higher the level of uncertainty, the higher the discount factor the lower the cash flows, and the tougher it is to make those projects pencil. That's one big impact to uncertainty. Stephanie talked about the outflow of uh, individuals from Alaska. So over the last six years, there's been an out-migration of about 36,000 individuals from Alaska. And a lot of those, as Stephanie indicated, was, occurred in the younger age groups. We see that in our business and in the businesses of customers. Fortunately, it's been made up a bit by uh, the natural births outweighing deaths, but we're still slightly losing um, people in our state. I believe that that's another effect of the uncertainty. And then in in addition to that, you have the topic, uh, let's say, short-term focus on the issue that we're talking about right now. So you have state government, you have business people, leaders focused on a year-over-year state budget deficit, as opposed to looking at the long-term viability for future developments for our state. I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person. I think there's great future in Alaska. My vision for uh, Alaska is to have a balanced budget. We all want that out there. So we're not focusing on the minutiae of the struggle for each year and how we're going to make it to the next year. We need to be thinking much longer term to develop our state. And that goes throughout our state. We have huge projects that can benefit us. And the only way that they're going to benefit from us for us is through greater certainty to allow for private investors to be insured of that end cash flow that I was just talking about. So that's a very simplistic vision as we go forward. We have great opportunities up here if we take advantage of them on the natural resources, through our logistics, uh, through taking advantage of where we're at. Tourism is growing greatly, and there are people making significant investments uh, in that. That's a big benefit to us as we go forward. But we do need to come to a resolution because we have the ability to do that. John John talked and asked you all, what was the largest expenditure out there for state government, and and a few people said health care. Well, really, under the current proposal, it's our dividend. That's about 37% of the revenue stream that's going into the state as proposed right now, 37%. Do we want a state That's, that's the single major component? I'm not downgrading the dividend. I believe that in the best of all cases, we'd have a state budget that's balanced, that would provide for an ongoing dividend, but would also have other diverse re- uh, revenue sources coming in. So we're not reliant upon the one topic that we just started this conversation with, and that's the volatility of our natural resources. We know that those are gonna be volatile, we know the market's gonna be volatile, so we need to account for that and have a steady cash flow as we go forward. Then, we can have long-term investment that will move the state forward. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Joe.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. Today's program is called The Costs of Alaska's Economic Roller Coaster, presented by Alaska Common Ground. We pick back up with moderator John Tracy. Our next speaker is a born and raised Alaskan. He currently works as a business
2: representative for IBEW uh, Local 1547, representing some 500 electrician journeymen and apprentices. He's worked in the electrical construction industry for approximately 14 years as an apprentice and journeyman electrician, including approximately three years as a full-time classroom instructor for both the IBEW and apprenticeship
5: program. Ryan Andrew. Ryan, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, John. And thank you to Alaska common ground for inviting me tonight to speak. And thank you to everyone who is here tonight. I um, appreciate you. So as John mentioned, my background is in the electrical construction industry and uh, started out as an apprentice electrician um, and was fortunate to start that out at an early age, went through the apprenticeship program and uh, became a journeyman electrician. But what I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight is our apprenticeship program. And I think that it is. It is related to the topic uh, in that, you know, the, the when the apprentices are are the, the main focus is that they're trained right here in Alaska. So our apprenticeship program is fairly unique in that it is almost completely funded by employer contributions on an hourly basis. Um, and you know those apprenticeship contributions go to pay for the instructors and the uh, apprenticeship school and the training that those apprentices get as they go through their uh, program. And it's about a four to five year program. Um, you know, the, part, the other part that makes it unique is that the apprentices have no tuition costs associated with that training. Um, they just have to pay for their textbooks and their tools for the on the job portion of their apprenticeship. Um, Which is a great benefit to them they get great training and uh, at minimal cost to them Um, you know as I mentioned it takes about four to five years to complete that program and With the cost of the instructor in the apprenticeship school itself, uh, you know, they invest about approximately 25 to $30,000 in training each apprentice uh, to get them through to a journeyman level uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big investment in training these apprentices. And our, our ultimate goal is to have a journeyman uh, trained and be able to stay and work in Alaska and have those work opportunities. Uh, the last few years we have seen with the economic downturn uh, a lot less work opportunities, frankly, in the construction industry. And that's got uh, pretty big impacts um, as far as our apprenticeship goes and our trade in general. Um, you know, and I can kind of break it down into a couple of different, uh, a couple different impacts for those apprentices. Um, we look at the, you know, the monetary uh, impact. As I mentioned, the twenty-five to thirty um, thousand dollars that that goes into these apprentices' training, and the problem we're running into is that in our industry, if there is no work opportunity, much like other industries. Uh, these apprentices, when they're finished with their training, and some of the journeymen who have been trained right here in Alaska, they're leaving. Uh, they're they're leaving for the Lower 48. They're leaving for uh, better work opportunity, and you know can't blame them. It's it's uh, it's that type of an industry, but you know imagine uh, that's kind of the monetary uh, cost to that uh, you know training program. But imagine that you're, you're a journeyman electrician and you have to, you know, you're faced with a decision whether you stay and you have limited work opportunity or you pick up your tools and you pick up your family and you move uh, out of Alaska, which is what we don't like to see. Unfortunately, that's happening. Uh, some of them on a temporary basis, but uh, some of them also on a permanent basis. So the, the temporary, uh, you know, if they were moving just for a little while, thats still got an emotional impact on that family they have to leave their uh, spouse and children behind here in Alaska and go uh, outside to earn a living um, that, that's tough that's really tough so you know I think it's been mentioned a couple times tonight and uh, Senator Murkowski's video earlier at the beginning mentioned probably the most important thing for us as a state uh, and it's a tough question to answer it's the million dollar question but uh, being able to diversify our revenue stream, I think that's number one. Um, and that will, that will give us financial stability and, and will attract investment from outside and attract uh, you know, business and, and keep our construction industry going strong. Because it, as I mentioned at the beginning, what we'd like to see at, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we train these apprentices uh, you know, in, in a good living. They get to earn uh, good wages and good benefits. And can really uh, have a career in that field to support their family for the rest of their lives. Um, and you know, we want to see that. We want to see those uh, folks be able to stay here in Alaska and not have to face those tough decisions. So,
2: thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Well, if you uh, if you watch television news or read the newspaper, then you know our next speaker. Um, certainly, he's the go-to person for journalists. I spent more than 30 years being an enemy of the people, apparently. And whenever we had questions about the gas line or something complicated, it was ask Larry. So we would call and we would ask Larry. Larry uh, has more than 20 years of experience as a reporter, editor, and newspaper owner in Alaska, followed by more than 20 years in public policy work at state, municipal, and federal jobs. His most recent position was chief of staff at the Kenai Peninsula Borough, Larry has also served as Deputy Commissioner at the Alaska Department of Revenue and worked in the Governor's Washington, D.C. office, and in his spare time, he just saves newspapers one at a time. Larry Persley.:
6: Thank you. I'm going to stand so when I wave my arms, I don't hit anybody in the face. So I'm going to talk about municipalities and how they deal with the motion sickness of the roller coaster that we're on it. And I will point out, as a kid, I would never ride a roller coaster. I've never been on one in my life because they scared me and I thought they'd make me sick. So it's kind of weird. I end up in Alaska and I ride a roller coaster (laughs) for 45 years. Look, even though this is Anchorage, you've got to remember there are 19 boroughs in 145 cities in Alaska. There is life outside of Anchorage. Over 100 of those cities and boroughs have a sales tax. This is an important part of their diversified um, economy, their diversified revenue flow. Anchorage, as we know, does not have a sales tax. It's not my fault. I have helped write two sales tax ordinances for Anchorage. Both have failed. I would have written a municipal income tax ordinance for Anchorage if anybody had asked me. though I really don't think it's legal under state law, you know, um, in addition to the sales tax, a couple dozen have specific directed taxes, or at least more than a couple dozen. We're talking about hotel bed tax, cigarette tax, alcohol tax. In a 2017 survey of Alaska municipalities, more than two dozen said they were looking at increasing their different excise tax sales taxes to help make up for falling state revenues. In 2017, 14 municipalities reported levying a new tax of one kind or another as they're looking to to fill that gap. But it's not easy in Alaska. Uh, Of the 15 boroughs that have a property tax, 12 of them have tax caps on the books, ordinances that limit increases what they can do to raise sales tax if they need to to replace state revenue. So, that economic instability, that roller coaster we're talking about, it's, it's pretty much going downhill one way for the municipalities. Where they're seeing it is um, reduced state reimbursement of local constru- school construction debt, uncertain state funding of school operating costs, uh, the things that are making it hard for municipalities, for school districts to retain. Recruit talent. I think a big fear municipalities face deals with the pension liabilities of public employees and and teachers Uh, A decade ago the legislature essentially refinanced the debt That is owed to the unfunded or underfunded public employee and teacher pension programs the deal was, okay, municipalities, you're gonna have to pay more because we've refinanced it. You're gonna have to keep paying for another nine years, but we'll set your contribution. The munis pay 22% of their payroll into the retirement funds. Anything over that 22% that is needed to keep the funds actuarially sound, the state will pick up. State will pick up that difference. this coming year, that difference that the state is paying is budgeted at a little more than $300 million. There are some legislators in the last few years, a few Republicans who look at that and say, well, there's where we can cut the state budget. We can stop making up the difference from the state general fund. We can have the municipalities pay more into the pension funds for retired public employees, for teachers, certainly that just passes, if it were to ever be approved, would just pass 300 million that you'd cut from the state budget and dump it on the municipalities. It's uh, unpleasant, gets back to that roller coaster that that makes you sick. Municipalities hoping that gets talked about but doesn't happen again. Um, You see it in state cutbacks, in um, state funding for community jails, for municipal assistance, particularly for the state's smallest communities that really depend on that small amount of state aid for essential services. Uh, High visibility, state troopers, the cutbacks in the troopers have caused problems throughout the state. In Anchorage, we see it on the highways where the troopers used to patrol. The municipality doesn't really want to spend the money, so they didn't. Finally, the solution was a, a temporary state grant so, Anchorage police could patrol all the way to the southern border with the Kenai Peninsula on the Seward Highway. The Haines Borough troopers used to cover the Haines Highway. They're not there. The Haines Borough was wrestling with can they send the Haines police out there? Who's going to pay for it? What's about the jurisdiction? Certainly, it also was a problem on the Kenai Peninsula Borough, where the borough operates the dispatch center in Soldatna that dispatches not just city police, but the troopers, troopers aren't there anymore. There are some times during the day where there are no troopers out on the Seward-Sterling highways, and that's that's creating a problem. So, okay, we go through the problems. What's the solution? Uh, the solution, as people have talked, is a more diversified revenue to the state treasury. So we're not just at the whims of oil or the political whims about a full dividend, a back pay dividend, whether we're gonna take away from the dividend to pay for schools. We need, in this political climate, it's probably not gonna happen, we need to get back the discussions of a broad-based tax where economic activity in the state generates tax revenues for the state, for the communities, be it an income tax, be it a review of state corporate taxes, be it a look at a reasonable changes in oil taxes. It's going to take everything, or the roller coaster just continues. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. Mm -hmm.
0: This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. Today's show is The Costs of Alaska's Economic Roller Coaster, presented by Alaska Common Ground. The event featured panelists from various sectors of the business community discussing the ups and downs of Alaska's economy and finding a stable source of state income. We continue with moderator John Tracy. Our next speaker is the Vice President of Government Contracting
2: for Siri. Uh, Greg Razzo heads up uh, Siri's efforts in pursuing minority preference small business contracts. Uh, He grew up in Anchorage, he earned a bachelor's degree in English from Gonzaga and a law degree from Willamette University. He currently serves as chair of the Alaska Criminal Justice Commission. He also serves with the AFN as chair of the AFN Resolutions Committee and sits on both the AFN Budget and Audit Committee and the AFN Legislative and Litigation Committee. Greg, you have the floor.
7: Thank you very much and thank you for everybody that came out this evening. So, full disclosure before I start in on on my discussion, but um, I grew up here in Anchorage, so I, uh, in terms of personal experience, I'm not qualified to speak about poverty in rural Alaska, but I'm going to. Um, I can tell you that I've uh, worked on the AFN Board of Directors for 16 years, I've lived in Kodiak, Alaska, I've been to the villages, um, but I haven't lived there. And so, with that, um, my comments. When we were first asked to uh, sit on this panel, the question that was the first question is, what in your experience have been the costs of economic instability? I thought about that, and uh, the first thing that came to mind for me, and based upon what I hear from people that live in rural Alaska, Alaska Native people, is the increase in poverty that is uh, right up there with the increase in crime in rural Alaska. So the increase in poverty, the increase in crime, the lowering of economic opportunity for people in Alaska with this economic instability, and finally, a lower trust in government. And I think those are four significant things that we need to talk about and grapple with as we talk about what Uh, Alaska's uh, fiscal situation really means to all Alaskans, not just the people that live in the urban centers, but the 60,000 Alaska natives that live outside of the Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Juneau areas. So when we talk about poverty in Alaska, we're talking about Alaska natives living in poverty at two and a half times the rate of uh, Caucasian Alaskans two times the rate of the general population. So pop, so poverty in rural Alaska is a very real thing, and things like the Permanent Fund Dividend make an extremely huge, significant, uh, giant, extraordinary uh, measure in terms of how people get by when they're forced, excuse me, when they're forced to live in two economies because they choose to live in two economies. They live in a cash economy where that dividend makes a huge difference, but Alaska Native people also live in a subsistence economy. And they live in an area where, generally speaking, economic opportunity is difficult. There's not a lot of it. For those people that are fortunate enough to have jobs, many of the jobs they have are working for the government, if they don't work for the government in some form or fashion, then they'll work in some sort of a resource extraction job. And those jobs are generally available to people that have some sort of uh, job skill. And many in rural Alaska are unskilled laborers. So those jobs are, uh, for the most part, not available to them. The consequence of, uh, of this fiscal instability in Alaska um, And and when we look back at at the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, uh, we see a huge, huge impact by the dividend for rural Alaska. I commend to you, and as I was doing my research for today, I came across um, University of Alaska Professor Matt Berman's article on uh, the effect of a Permanent Fund dividend on Alaska's Indigenous people. And what I'm telling you is simply what what he says in his paper along with many facts and figures. But when you look at uh, Professor Berman's article, you see confirmation through um, many facts, many tables, many charts um, from what folks at, at AFN and the folks that come to that table tell us every time we get together that the current situation in Alaska is untenable. It is, uh, it is being uh, detrimental to the lives of Alaska Native people and, generally speaking, to the lives of people that live in rural Alaska. Um, it's not just a matter of dollars and cents, because dollars and cents, when we come to state expenditure and making the decision to decrease public safety, to uh, decrease public services, uh, to... Um, to have less state services available that are essential really to folks that live in rural Alaska, when those go away, they not only take jobs away, but they take opportunity away. And, you know, as a state, I don't think we can afford, if we're going to grow and increase our opportunity, we can't afford to take away economic economic opportunity from rural Alaska. So, The point is, I guess, that the Permanent Fund dividend really is essential to the economy of rural Alaska. That it has served to decrease poverty uh, substantially since it was created in 1980, and that uh, the effect of the Permanent Fund dividend, and to some extent Alaska Native Corporation dividends uh, to the income of Alaska Native people, has had a substantial effect on reducing their poverty. But poverty still exists in Alaska, and it exists greatly in rural Alaska. So until we can come to grips with our fiscal situation here, we have no hope of of restoring the opportunity and the, uh, the future for folks, especially our children, as they grow up and have economic opportunity available to them. If they continue along this road, if we continue along this road as Alaskans, those opportunities are not gonna be existent for them. So I have to agree with, I think, every comment that has been made so far by this panel. I think um, coming to grips with how we maintain a stable dividend, how we maintain some sort of um, um, economy that has a diverse revenue stream, all of those things are important to this discussion. But the importance of services in rural Alaska cannot be overstated. Those services are essential. And to, to, to even think about decreasing services, um, I, I can only tell you that it will have uh, a negative effect on your brothers and sisters in rural Alaska first.
2: Thank you. And so, our, our next presenter is the president of the CPA firm Schneider & Mode. He's a certified public accountant with 40 years of experience. He served as president of the Alaska Society of CPAs, as well as chairman of the professional education and taxation committees for the society. He has served as an adjunct professor of tax and accounting for the University of Alaska. Delighted to have you
8: here today, Mark Schneider. Mike, Mark? Thank you. <clears throat> I'd also like to thank you for being here, however, as an accountant sitting in front of a big group of people, it's not the most comfortable position I've ever been in. <laughs> um, I've been in Alaska as a CPA for 37 years, which means two things: number one, I'm old, and secondly, I've seen a lot of the ups and downs. And so I'm I'd just like to reiterate what we've already heard here, especially from the construction industry. What I see happening a lot with my clients, and I deal mainly with small businesses, is that they will, during the uptimes, they will uh, increase their staff, they will train them, they will get them to the point where they're valuable, and then the economy can turn. They have to lay those people off. When the economy turns back up again, they're looking to hire, but the people that they've already trained are gone. They've either had to move out of the state or move to another job and so they have to start all over again. And that's a big cost to um, the employers in Alaska that I see. Anybody who's an employer in here that has had to retrain a staff knows that it's expensive. and uh, And so that's what I see the most of. I've always thought that in order to correct this problem, I was hoping that somebody smarter than me would figure it out and I'm not saying I'm smart but I'm not sure if there's people that are trying to figure out that are smarter than me Um, and so I'm looking to the rest of the people on the panel here to have those suggestions that we can figure out where we can smooth out our economy so that we don't have these up and ups and downs in the future
0: thank you thank you You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. Today's program is called The Costs of Alaska's Economic Roller Coaster, presented by Alaska Common Ground. We pick back up with moderator John Tracy.
2: Well, the other place that uh, journalists tend to go to get information is ICER. So we are delighted to have with us somebody who actually crunches numbers for a living and tells us what those numbers mean. Uh, Moussin Ghatabi has been on the ISER faculty since July of 2012. He holds a joint appointment with the Economics Department where he teaches urban and regional economics and health economics. His research interests range from the role of sprawl in affecting health outcomes to econ- econometric, wow, thanks, Moussin, <laughs> modeling at the subnational level. Moussin Ghatabi.
9: So thank you for having me. I I think the the theme tonight from people that have skin in the game has been that economic uncertainty is costly. And that's something that's clear to all of us. As an economist, I specialize in pointing out the obvious, and so I'm going to be doing a bit of that over the next 10 minutes. I was reading an article, I think a couple weeks ago. Uh, And there was a quote that I found fascinating. It's by the director of the International Monetary Fund. And she said that cross-country skiers and economies like the exact same thing. They like good visibility. When going down, they like very few hazards and they like people staying in their tracks. (laughs) And I thought, how perfect for Alaska? Right? We like cross-country skiing, but as we've heard from people who have skin in the game, who make investment decisions, that having a predictable environment is absolutely key in making long-term decisions. And that's true for both households and for businesses alike. Right? And so one of the things that we've heard is that people tend to move out when the environment is uncertain. Economics is a field that's filled with cliches. People vote with their feet. If the environment is uncertain, if I don't know whether or not I'm gonna have a job tomorrow, then I'm unlikely to buy a house, I'm, li- I'm unlikely to buy a car, I'm unlikely to go out and spend money. Similarly, businesses are unlikely to hire our university graduates. Those university graduates are unlikely to stay in state, right? And so. Whichever dimension we assess, uncertainty has massive economic consequences. Last year, I was asked multiple times to try and quantify these economic costs of uncertainty. And so I went and scoured the economic literature and I ended up finding a few papers that try and put some numbers around the cost of economic uncertainty. What those papers do is try to see what happens to investment during elections Because elections basically may result in somebody winning that you may not like, what they end up finding is investments tend to go down in the quarters before elections by somewhere between five and 15%. Now, of course, that type of uncertainty is a much milder type than what we're currently experiencing. Now, I went ahead and I took those estimates that I just described, and I applied them to our construction spending in Alaska. And what I found is, over the last three years, in each of the last three years, Alaska basically could have had somewhere between 200 and 600 million dollars in additional investment if there was no uncertainty. Now that means during those 3 years where we had those revenue shortfalls, we basically could have had somewhere between 600 and 2 billion dollars in additional investment if the environment was predictable, if we knew what we were going to do. We sit right now in a situation where we've already exhausted our savings and we have a 1.6 billion with a b billion dollar deficit. Now, the difficult aspect of this conversation is still, we still have not figured out who's gonna end up bearing the burden of this $1.6 billion, right? We don't know if we're gonna impose a tax, and if so, what kind of tax it will be. We don't know if we're gonna reduce the dividends, and if so, by how much, and we don't know if we're gonna cut government or we do know we're gonna cut government, we don't know by how much and what kind of services we're gonna end up cutting, right? And so what that ends up doing is basically causing paralysis by both households and businesses, and nobody's doing anything, nobody is investing any money, and so in addition to the fact that we no longer have savings and There are, I've had conversations that I find a little bit troubling in that there are people that think that government, there is this artificial separation between government and the private sector, when in reality decisions that are made by government end up affecting the private industry. Salaries by government employees make a huge difference in our economy. And so at the end of the day, again, coming back to cliches, There is no free lunch. We sit in a situation where we're gonna have some very difficult decisions. There are trade-offs that need to be made. We're asking the permanent fund to do so much more than it did in the past, where it historically invested, grew, and paid out dividends. Now we're asking it to pay for a portion of government and pay for dividends, and yet we still have what was labeled by one of my former colleagues as the Alaska disconnect, meaning that even when the Alaska Economy is growing and doing really well there is no mechanism by which government revenues grow because we don't have an income tax and we don't have a sales tax we have some selective sales taxes we have license taxes Larry pointed out that many a borough has a sales tax but there are no statewide mechanisms by which economic growth ends up translating into revenue growth or revenue diversification and so Going forward, I think that we should prioritize stabilizing the economic environment for both households and businesses, and set in a course that we think we can stick to. Of course, there are unknowns into the future, but we should do our absolute best to at least make sure that we know that there are some parameters that we're gonna abide by as opposed to this kind of roller coaster that we've been undergoing. Thank you for listening, and I'll pass it off to you.
2: So we have time for just one more question, and I just want everybody on the panel to answer this question, and it's just a final one. Where do we go from here? What, what should we be doing? Um, what should we be doing to get off this roller coaster?
4: What can you recommend that we do as Alaskans? So I'll start since it's here. So, so we as Alaskans have the opportunity, unique opportunity, I believe, because we have a small state. We, we can be engaged and we can make a difference. We can have somebody like Vic Fisher is here that helped form our constitution. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And, and many of us out there have had the opportunity to be engaged, so I, I just ask that you be engaged, you talk to your legislators, and you make a difference because um, we have a unique ability to do that here, I think unlike many other states. So take advantage of it and express your views, as you have today, but out towards our legislators. It's just very, very important at this stage that we're in. Thank you.
3: I'd like to return back to the topic of education and uh, just taking a look at University of Alaska's um, difficulties right now with their uh, education, School of Education. I have on my staff uh, two employees who are both studying to become teachers. And the upheaval that I've seen them experience in their lives over the last three, four weeks has been dramatic, looking at where they're gonna go, what they're gonna do. Um, So I think just kind of looking across all industries, but also, of course, looking at education as well um, to prevent some of the brain drain that that, uh, we've been discussing.
5: I would agree with that 100%. You know, I think that, uh, as has been mentioned, I think it's upon all of us to, you know, collectively um, participate and be willing to, uh, you know, contribute our fair share. Um, I think that I think that all of us should be continue to be and increasingly um, active and engaged with our legislature. Uh, they're humans just like we all are, and uh, they love to hear from us. Um, So anytime that there's something of importance to you, you know, reach out to your legislator uh, and know who your elected officials are. Also, I'm glad that uh, you brought up the uh, education and coming back to that piece because there's one thing I'd like to add to that conversation. Um, I think that education no different than other industries in Alaska, when when there's limited opportunity or the opportunity um, isn't as good as it could be elsewhere you'll see educators uh, specifically leave the state uh, as in other industries. So I think one thing specifically that we can do going forward, uh, Alaska used to be one of the best places for uh, educators to come and work um, and earn a wage and earn a, a respectable retirement. So I think one of the things that we could do uh, that would really do us well as a state uh, in the future is for our, our system to return to um, a defined benefit or pension type retirement account. So. Thank you.
6: I'd say in addition to contacting, talking to your legislators, if there's anyone here who didn't vote in the November election, try to vote next time. And then the last thing I guess I'd say until we get an income tax, for those of us who can afford it, there are a lot of nonprofits that provide services that state and federal governments had cut back on. We need to
7: write them checks. So a rising tide floats all all boats, right? We've heard that. I believe that uh, when you grow up here in Alaska, when you take advantage of living here in Alaska, uh, you have the advantage of an education opportunity to live in a very diverse population with uh, many different cultural values, that all of that is worth celebrating. And all of that has great value when we go forward, if we recognize the value that lies in each and every one of us and realize that we make a choice when we live here, but when you make a choice, there's a price to be paid for that choice. Those are the things that we have to keep in mind if we're going to have a successful Alaska, in my view.
8: Well, I have to agree with you. I mean, this is a great place to live. as with all of us here I've had a free ride for the last 37 years and so I'm willing to start maybe paying my fair share of what it costs to live here Um, and that's over the next couple years we have to look at different sources of revenues for the state income tax sales tax whatever it might be but beyond that we have to start thinking about farther into the future and diversifying our economy and I think the state is the is the entity that can take the leading role in that? Um, it's very difficult for each of us individually to start planning and and uh, of ways to diversify our economy here, but that's something that needs to be done. And I'd look to the state to hopefully lead, take the leadership role in that.
2: Thank you, Mousine. You have the last word. Uh,
9: I I think that we we have we have an asset, the permanent fund, that's whose value exceeds the overall value of the Alaska economy. As I said earlier, the permanent fund has $63 billion. The whole Alaska economy is valued at about somewhere close to $53 billion. I think what we need to do is make sure that we draw money from it at a responsible rate in order for it to be sustainable. It was meant to be a sustainable asset. We need to draw from it at a rate that's sustainable. And most importantly, we need to ensure that we're not myopic in implementing austerity measures that can have very long-term damaging consequences for the state of Alaska, its quality of life, and the services that it provides its citizens.
2: Thank you. you. So, thank you very much to the panel. Um, I'm so glad we recognize Vic Fisher, just an icon uh, in Alaska, Um, a treasure. And he shines bright because he's sitting next to another Alaska treasure, Jane Anvik. Jane, it's great to see you here, thank you. Um, on behalf of Alaska Common Ground,
4: here's Dick to say goodnight. Okay, I want
0: to thank you all for coming, and uh, I'd like to hear a big round of applause for all our panelists and speakers. And also a round of applause for John for moderating, volunteering to
4: moderate today.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's show was The Costs of Alaska's Economic Roller Coaster. It was presented by Alaska Common Ground and was recorded at 49th State Brewing Company on January 27th. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more like it, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. We had production help from Eric Bork. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org.
8: informed. This is Alaska Public Media.